0: Excuse me. That should just be the photo. Edwin sleeping against his massive hangover poster.
1: It was a a long day yesterday, Craig. Some guys just can't hand (laughs) Yeah, the
0: hango. Look at that. The The hango.
1: It June. It June. Nice.
0: secret movie clubbers the secret movie club podcast 113 today we are talking about nicholas winding reffin's drive the 2011 probably his biggest hit ever starring uh, ryan gosling brian cranston carrie mulligan oscar isaac before he blew up albert brooks ron perlman and we have returning secret movie club team member alex olivier Alex, thank you for being
2: with us. Thank you for having me. This is great. Representing a beautiful...
3: Is that a Mondo drive print behind you?
2: Yeah, it's not like the official films poster. It's very striking. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah.
0: Whenever Alex joins the pod, we can see three posters behind him. The drive poster, and then the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, where he and his wife, because they have a young (laughs) daughter, it's the amazing Japanese version of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, and they've covered Laura Palmer's bloody sort of (laughs) transcendental face, understandably. And then what's the third poster?
2: It's... uh, French poster for Marie Antoinette. Underrated. Yeah. I love hearing it. love seeing it. I agree. My three favorite Sofia Coplas are probably
0: Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette. And is it Together, the one where she's with her dad, at
4: the, somewhere.
2: Somewhere, yeah.
1: Who
4: else is with us?
3: Oh, did, I don't think I noticed. Hi, it's Tano. Hey, it's
1: me, Connolly Cruz, the people's champion.
4: Hello, America. It's another uh, day in no man's land, man. Ah, oh, you used man twice there. That was impressive. Yeah, <laughs> man. And I'm
0: Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club.
1: I'm going to throw it to future Connor right now to tell you what's coming up. Thanks, past Craig. Well, Coming up on Thursday, August 4th, at the Secret Movie Club Theater, we're showing Summertime, a newish movie which follows the intersecting stories of 27 youth spoken word poets over a single day in Los Angeles. We're going to have the director, Carlos Lopez Estrada, in attendance, and we will be doing before the movie some live spoken word and poetry. And then on Saturday, August 13th, at the Million Dollar Theater, We are showing the classic Bride of Frankenstein on the request of Mr. Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy, among other things, legendary comics creator. He will be in attendance. We are also showing a new documentary, Mike Mignola, Drawing Monsters. And we have an exclusive poster designed by Mr. Mignola that is sold out online, but there are going to be some copies at the show. Back to you, future Craig, or past Craig, whatever. Thank you, future
0: Connor. (laughs) That was very illuminating. And as always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets and find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com, Eventbrite. Now we've got a whole merchandise store of posters and T-shirts. And we're actually launching, with the help of Bri Robert, a whole archive of interviews that we have. The Farrelly's and Andrew Bujalski and Slava Suckerman, Jim Cummings. And we're going to have Eric Zala, who did the Raiders adaptation. And it's all free. We're not charging. Uh, No paywall. You can check that out. We got a bunch of other stuff coming up. In 2011, Nicholas Winding Refn made Drive, which was. Probably one of, if not the darling of Cannes that year. I think it won Ruffing the director prize. It was a breakout hit. When it came to the United States and opened, and it, it's an American movie, it made $70 million. And the budget for the film, I believe, was somewhere between 20 and 25 So any movie that makes 3x what it cost is a hit. But paradoxically or ironically, because of the way that, unfortunately, our industry thinks right now, it wasn't $100 million. And so everyone thought for a moment that Nicholas Winding Refn was going to be sort of the new it director of Hollywood and his career went in a different direction. We're going to talk about it. But prior to Drive, he had actually already been making movies for over a decade and he had already made these movies that people love, like the Pusher trilogy, Valhalla Rising, and then just before Drive, an incredible movie with Tom Hardy about Britain's most incarcerated criminal who also had a sensitive artistic side, Michael Peterson, also known is Charlie Bronson, and the movie was called Bronson. And we showed here at the club three of Reffin's films, and we called them a trilogy of Misfit Masculinity, because these three movies definitely felt like they were all part of a trilogy. It's interesting. Sometimes they're thematic trilogies. Wong Kar Wai, probably most famously, because characters reoccur, so it actually is a trilogy. But he made this trilogy of, of love or romance that was Days of Being Wild in the Mood for Love in 2046. But really, they're thematically linked with all the love loves you have before the love of your life, the love of your life, and then the loves you have after the love of your life. And the trilogy of Misfit Masculinity was Bronson starring Tom Hardy, Drive starring Ryan Gosling, and then Only God Forgives also starring Ryan Gosling, of which I think I am in a very small minority of people who I love that film. And every time I see that movie, I'm like, okay, I got to be brutal with myself. Everyone else thinks it sucks. And then I watch it, I'm like, it doesn't suck, it's great. But it's great for me, it's not great for anyone, for very few other people. But today we're gonna start off with Drive. So is about a Hollywood stunt driver played by Ryan Gosling, who moonlights as a getaway driver for heists and robberies. He uh, falls in love with a neighbor in his building played by Carey Mulligan, and really becomes a foster father to her son. And as movies are wont to do, suddenly her husband and the boy's dad shows up from jail, released from jail, and that's Oscar Isaac and he brings a lot of bad people with him. And weirdly, those bad people turn out to be bad people that Ryan Gosling was already involved with without knowing it. It's an amazing LA movie. People know it from its style it's soundtrack it's just a vibe movie like blade runner is a vibe movie
2: yeah drive is one of my favorite movies ever and i think i said this about 2001 on the 70 millimeter podcast it's one of those movies that i've seen you know so many times in so many formats but i had never seen it uh, on 35 until i was in the booth for it and seeing it up there on film on the big screen was like you know a revelation it maybe sounds obvious to say because this is a movie that a ton of people really love but it kind of i guess just spoke for itself the movie is so amazing as to why I love this movie so much, it's like a great story and everything, but in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it would be a pretty just kind of straightforward, good movie. But Nick Reffin followed kind of, I guess, his instincts and he turned it into like a intentionally detached from reality, like hyper violent neon noir, like fairy tale, really, which was a really interesting way to approach that kind of a story. Despite the fact that it's like a really compelling, great story with great beats, it's one of those movies that you kind of feel more than you actually kind of follow, which is just like a really amazing kind of way to experience a movie. It's not often that you get to uh, do something so purely like that. He is
0: a very famous Danish filmmaker from Denmark. Raffin, he and Lars von Trier, both hail from Denmark, Hamlet's both in their own right in towards their like tortured view of filmmaking. But... What you said, Alex, weirdly, even though it's all there, sometimes people have to point out to you the scorpion jacket that Ryan Gosling wears almost the entire movie, which is this really fascinating thing where he's our hero, but you slowly realize that he may also be our villain. But not necessarily the way that Albert Brooks or Ron Permlin are clearly the villains. But he's kind of a psychotic hero in, as you were saying, and maybe it was a result of Reffin being Danish, but the LA, even though I've said it in the intro, his version of LA is actually strikingly close to how I understand Los Angeles, which is really, really weird, but he got how it feels. I'm a native Los Angelino. Edwin's a native Los Angelino as well. I don't know. Edwin, do you feel that drive kind of gets at how LA feels?
4: Sort of. I mean, uh no it does but there's some parts where the whole movie like you know LA's a very clean place but in reality it's not when they're on my car at the park and (laughs) it's like it's all clean I said to myself that is not how it's like that that is a lie That is a damn lie. That's 2011. I mean— But by 2011, it was still like that, no matter what. It was not clean. It was not empty like that.
2: But, Edwin, Edwin, that's the thing is it's not like a realistic movie. The point is that it's not grounded in reality. I know. I just had had a problem with that scene. That's it.
0: Edwin, though, makes a really good point. MacArthur Park, famously for anyone from Los Angeles, and then when you move here, you learn it, too, is where you score drugs and fake IDs— and uh
4: <laughs> little... passports. Yeah,
0: passports. Uh what else did other people think about uh
4: drive? Right. Uh give it a shot. Um I'm not a big fan of it. It's an okay movie. I dig it, but I don't know I just I just felt kinda of bored by it. it. It takes the concept of Walter Hill's the driver, so I'm gonna put that out there. Also said in Los Angeles. Also the Ryan Neal is a getaway driver. And does stuff on the side. So I'm just saying, if it weren't for Walter Hill's The Driver, you wouldn't have Drive. Or Baby Driver.
3: It's part of the hot guys driving cars real good pantheon of L.A. filmmaking, which I'm a big fan of.
0: Gone in 60 Seconds.
3: Sure. Nick Cage in in Gone in 60 Seconds. He
0: has a lot of car driving. Did To Live and Die in L.A.?
3: Oh, yeah. That's, uh, uh, um, Schneider. Freakin'. No. William 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 Peterson. Peterson. I'm I'm talking about the hot drivers. (laughs) Money Plane. Money? Oh my
2: gosh, yeah. Drive and a um, plant. It's not an L.A. one, but uh, Les Samurai, Alain Delon. Yeah,
3: I'd put that in the pantheon of Hot Drivers, too.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I only mentioned it because I know it was a for sure influence on uh, Gosling's character, or at least the way he played his character.
1: Yeah, you put together our pre-show, Alex, for Drive, and there was some really cool stuff, including a couple of Kenneth Inger bits in there.
2: Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I know Refn's been very vocal about the influence of Kenneth Inger, not on just Drive, but his body of work kind of overall. I think it's really cool to go back and look at because all that Kenneth Anger stuff is super fun. You know, Scorpio Rising is probably Kenneth Anger's, I guess, most like popular or most famous film that he made. And it's also the biggest influence on Drive. Obviously, there's the Scorpion jacket that Ryan Gosling wears that's directly out of Scorpio Rising. But uh, the kind of amalgamation of juxtaposition, rather, of upbeat pop music set against not really like uh, much narrative, but there's visual storytelling for sure. And just allowing the two to kind of combine, to create and weave something that you can follow, but also makes you feel uh, is really neat and something that Refn took to heart for sure.
3: Anger's like combination of music and visuals were sort of, when I think of that at its peak, I think of, of Anger. And so it makes sense that I've, I've never, I've never heard, made the correlation before between drive and that, but that makes absolute sense Where like the soundtrack is so fundamental to how the images play and it lets stuff hang out a lot longer than it normally would because the vibe is just so like correct. Like that opening chase and drive or the opening getaway and drive. You put that under, you know, one of a thousand other circumstances and it's kind of a boring start because a lot of it's just stationary parking, but you put it with every detail, especially with the music, overlaid on it and it suddenly transforms into like one of the most engaging five minutes that just tells you everything you need to know about ryan gosling at the time too
0: and i do want to amplify what edwin said I, you know i've never seen walter hills uh the driver but
4: damn shame man damn shane's one of the great movies of la man ryan o'neill bruce Dern, man my hero Bruce dern and isabella johnny man missing out on a great picture that he won't show ever No, I I hope I'll
0: show it. I need to see it. I need to see it. But even when Drive came out, I remember hearing about The Driver. A lot of people talking about like, oh, these movies share a lot of DNA. I'm in the
3: the Drive camp. I love Drive. Drive's such an interesting product too, because it really walks this interesting line between art house and wide appeal without feeling like it's compromising to either side. We talked about, and I'm sure we'll get into reference career, but he really took that he probably could have done whatever he wanted after this. And the path he took is so much more interesting to a degree because he was like, I don't want any of the things I'm being offered. I want to just keep doing the thing that I love to do.
1: It should be noted, he is making some sort of Maniac Cop remake at the moment. But so that's like Ooh. totally in line with him.
3: I have a, a, a personal connection to Drive and that I was in college when it came out in my first apartment. I had just moved in maybe a week before and they had a free screening of Drive with Raffin in attendance and it was the first thing my roommates and I did. So it was like the first time I felt, I was like, I have my own place. Like, life's crazy. And then I went to see this and he stayed for a long time afterwards because he was still I, I was unfamiliar with him except for Bronson and was a very like generous speaker and stayed and talked to a ton of very annoying film kids with all their questions <laughs> and all the stuff they wanted signed. sign it's a weird movie that I think you can show to a huge realm of people who will all take something very different from it away It makes sense that it's something that's beloved by... I feel like if I was going to film school, if you went to film school as a freshman in the years after this, I would imagine Drive was a pretty popular choice. But the reasonings behind it are probably pretty singular to people because it kind of hits at all these things and it hits at them all really well of being this interesting character study that's really light on plot because the plot moves the characters along because the plot sort of, it doesn't matter. But the vibe is, to me, the biggest takeaway from it that... That entire thing, it's its an experience it, in terms of the way that the visuals and the music play with your emotional sense throughout the whole thing. It's such a unique thing in that regard. I dig it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. When you talk
0: about vibe movies, it's really important, at least for me, to distinguish them from movies that are all style and no substance. Because I think that you could almost think, oh, well, that's what it is. It's not what it is. A vibe movie for me is weirdly a movie where the narrative nutrition comes in the vibe. And it's very hard to explain, but you know, the movie works story-wise. You know, Alex, you were talking about how when you really think about the story, it is a genre story that you've heard a lot, which is this guy has a double life. He falls in love. Then the woman and the kid he falls in love with, they're endangered, so he has to sacrifice for them. I mean, it's a story we've seen a bunch of times. Refn, because he did make it very bad, tells a very, it's sort of funny, but I know he means it very earnestly, story where he and Ryan Gosling were getting to know each other and if they were going to do this movie, and they were just driving around L.A., and Refn put in some song and burst out into tears and just started like sobbing uncontrollably in the car, and then like Ryan Gosling was looking at Refn, and then Refn was like, this is what the movie's about. This is what the movie's about. And then he was like, this is why we have to make this movie. And I guess Gosling was like, right on. And then it was like, (laughs) somehow they both in the car, like got it. And when you see the movie, that story kind of makes sense to me because it's about a man who really does love that kid and really does love Carrie Mulligan, but comes to the realization that he is inherently psychotic and violent. And in a way to express that love has to separate himself from them because he's always going to bring violence with him, which is something you've seen. But there's something actually profoundly moving about that to me. And there's something profoundly moving about the Gosling character because heroes, not to get too nerdy, but when you read you know, mythology and Joseph Campbell, and, and I do love reading all the the mythologies of the world, one of the things you notice is that often heroes, they get scarred and maimed. And they can't actually reintegrate with the village. It's a really interesting thing. And so when a hero goes on a hero's quest, yes, that hero, he or she goes beyond where everyone else goes, but they're never accepted back into society when they return. Even when what they've done has ostensibly benefited society, they just can't reintegrate. And it's funny when you see every mythology around the world, you're like, oh yeah, Jesus, oh word. seven samurai they can't reintegrate they're not accepted by the village frodo frodo can't he's not accepted he can't return to Hobbit. exactly in fact it's a monomyth to me and i love the directing i love the style i love the shots i think albert brooks is like great in this movie as a bad guy and he really commits to it too so uh and ron perlman
3: gosling at the time like 2011 ryan gosling this was not Anything in the wheelhouse you it from him, which I think also makes it really exciting.
0: Totally. I think pointing out the importance of an actor really trusting a director. And if we talk about only God forgives, <laughs> we can talk about maybe why they didn't work again. But yeah, I mean, if you're a director, you got nothing. If you don't have an actor that's going to go for you, like, okay, that's what you want. That's what I'll do. If you got an actor that's fighting you on that. You don't have a movie. So Gosling gave Raffin drive. And Carrie Mulligan is dynamite. She was originally supposed to be Latina. They were supposed to be Hispanics in the building. And Oscar Isaac and Carrie Mulligan and the kid are also kind of a weird fairy tale couple. You're like, what's
1: this about? But it works beautifully. Anyway. I remember liking Drive. I didn't really get a chance to rewatch it because of the schedule we're recording this at and the week we're coming off of. I remember Drive being a movie I kind of waited to watch because the people who really liked it were like some of the worst people at film school.
0: (laughs) It is kind of a bro movie.
1: And my main memory was being bummed that Christina Hendricks gets her head exploded after showing up for two seconds. I remember liking it, but I don't remember liking it enough that I felt super motivated to rewatch it. I think I'm sort of with Edwin, where I like, I dig the movie, but I don't really like, love the movie. And I think that that's kind of my general feeling about Refn. I've seen the Neon Demon, which I think I might actually like more just because maybe I'm being contrarian and maybe I like horror stuff. I have a more distinct memory of what like happens in that movie. Maybe it's because I think the beats in that movie are a little weirder, whereas the beats in Drive are more typical action movie. The one thing I wanted to bring, my my lack of content is part of why I got Alex on here besides (laughs) him him loving drive. But I also, I was trying to get Brian uh, Robert on here. He was not able to make it, but I was going to share this quote that he gave me. Reffin and I this is from Brian's point of view share the same kind of color blindness having trouble distinguishing midtones and I also have issues with red green I think because of this the oversaturated color palettes that Reffin uses appeals so much to me the reason he does it so much in his films is so he can actually see the differences in color which I can relate to and I, I just think that's like pretty fascinating That's almost like something we should have Brian on to talk about as, as its own thing, color palettes and stuff.
0: The way I would define Refn as a director, and I have not seen Neon Demon, nor have I seen A Tool to Die Young, his uh, series. And I think those are the two projects that came after Only God Forgives. I've only seen Bronson Drive and Only God Forgives. I haven't seen the Pusher series or Valhalla Rising, which are instrumental and a lot of people talk about them. I know, Alex, you've seen the Pusher series. Well,
2: I've seen uh, the first Pusher movie and also another movie that he did after the Pusher series, or maybe even during them called Fear X with uh, John Turtero.
0: They Yeah. So, I mean, he had five, six pictures before Bronson. But he's known, and I want people to correct me if this sounds wrong, but he's somebody who very much lives in violence. And his cinema is a cinema of violence where characters often can only express themselves through violence, but actually try to find a way to convert that violence into artistic expression. And it's interesting if you talk about the RefN Ur theme. The Ref and Ur theme seems to be misfits who are violent, who are trying somehow to transcend that violence or not. I mean, a lot of times they get into it. So I think what's interesting about him is if you're going into rough end, you're going into violent stuff. One of the things I think is so fascinating is we just re Bronson, which really talk about a movie that hinges on a performance. I mean, you look at Tom Hardy's committed performance in that movie. I was reading that that movie was made for under a million, you know, and it was shot with Kubrick cinematographer and you would never know it. That movie looks incredible. The performances are incredible. I think it's just an incredible movie, but it all revolves around Tom Hardy's like 400% commitment performance to that character and his performance. And what's interesting is that's a character who is violent, but weirdly the whole time you can tell that the character, even though he doesn't have a complete self-awareness about why he's violent, understands that he's in conflict with it. And I actually find it incredibly compelling, which I think is why, I think When Only God Forgives, which was about Gosling in Thailand, he basically, it's a very, very dark, you could almost say trashy if you want to put it that way, but very, talk about bold colors. Basically, he runs a boxing club with his brother. His brother one night goes out and kills an underage prostitute and a local police chief essentially representing God meets out justice. And then Gosling and and his now dead brother's mom comes, played by Kristen Scott Thomas, who I think is great. And she's clearly the devil. And she asks Gosling basically to get revenge. But Gosling is our everyman in the movie. And he actually understands that his brother did a bad thing. And so Gosling is this everyman caught between God and the devil, essentially. Maybe it was too allegorical. Maybe it was too two-tone, not three-dimensional. But it's a movie like none other I've seen, and even though I don't like it as much as Drive and Bronson, I do. I can watch it again and again and again, and it's very singular to me, excluding a few film school touches, like when Gosling puts his hand in his mother's stomach when she's dead, and I was like, I didn't need that. That's on the nose. I know that was an image that you thought was good. I wish you hadn't had. But anyway, other Gosling thoughts? I mean, let's, let's have a conversation.
4: Or, I'm sorry, Raffin' Thoughts. Raffin' Thoughts.
0: <laughs> or, Gosselin' Thoughts.
4: Bronson is my favorite movie by him. Then I consider it to be the best movie he's ever done in his career. I mean, Drive, Pass, but Bronson. That's a picture, man. That is a movie. Basically, that's his own version of A Clockwork Orange since he uses Kubrick's cinematographer. And it shows on the screen. My favorite moment in that movie... Is when um, Hardy has his uh, painting teacher hostage. That's such a great scene. Uh, that scene is just so beautiful. Like, just the, When the music builds up and he has like, the scars coming in there, and he's just knocking them out one by one, like being the most badass dude ever. I worship that movie. It's just so damn incredible. And a great soundtrack. You can have your drive and your God for I got Charlie Brunson.
2: well yeah edwin i mean i love drive but i think bronson rules too i and it also has an amazing soundtrack it has that glass candy song is super prominent in bronson but that's the same you know people involved who did the like chromatics drive soundtrack like johnny jewel and ruth radolette but yeah i think bronson works kind of for the same reason drive works is that like if you strip away all of reference style which there's a ton of in each movie Like, it's still a good nutritional, to co-opt your term for it, Craig, like narrative and story there, which is not something that you can say of every other Refn film. Specifically, I would single out Valhalla Rising, The Neon Demon, and Only God Forgives. But it's, you know, a beautiful marriage of style and substance the same way that Drive is.
0: That's the thing that has now been leveled with Refn post-Drive is Refn really doubled down. You know, Only God Forgives, you could say, oh, he was trying to go for something different and whether you think it works or it doesn't work. But then when Only God Forgive famously got booed at Cannes and was, a like, by most people's accounts, a misfire, again, I love it, but a misfire for most people, a lot of directors would recalibrate or they'd be like, ah, I'm going to reset and do another drive or do another Bronson. But Refn really was like, no, (laughs) I'm, like, going to double down. And then he did Neon Demon which I haven't seen yet. And then has anyone seen Too Old to Die Young?
3: I saw the first episode. It's the same type of thing in a positive way that it's it's very much a surprising, uncompromising thing. Because I think it was sort of advertised as like a police procedural, like a double agent. It's about Miles Teller. He's a detective that's sort of living a double life and being on the inside. So a similar reference obsessed with the concepts of split personalities with Bronson and with Drive and Neon Damon and sort of like the real reality versus like dream you but sometimes dream you is also like horrifying i really liked it. i don't know why i didn't finish it and i might have to return now after these conversations but it has that same it has all the characteristics and i think it's really long too He got to make the show he wanted to make in a way that doesn't always happen with that i think amazon has it and they just clearly threw money at it and said do your thing and it was after neon demon which i'm a fan of i really like the neon demon i've never rewatched it so maybe i'll give it a chance sometime but i was not taken with only god forgives for that same i think alex kind of Nailed the ideas that so much of his stuff feels like he understands that it, there has to be substance within the style, and he understands that and makes a lot of his style things I think elevate and attach to character or plotting. And I didn't feel that with Only God Forgives, but some of the conversations around it are so interesting now versus that initial kind of reaction that I want to go back and give it another chance because it is. I pull it up on Letterbox to kind of see what the people I follow with, and it's overwhelmingly positive on my end. It's, it has a very solid three out of five rating, which usually people in mass groups that hate something make sure something's really low. So it's interesting to kind of see that maybe this is one that'll get a kind of a reevaluation in the years to come.
0: I would encourage I'm somebody who I've always felt only God forgives deserves a reconsideration, a reevaluation. Again, I understand why people don't like it, but I think there's actually something very profoundly moving about it there's a lot there for me but it is a violent movie
1: i was just gonna say i I looked it up too old to die young is 12 and a half hours yeah and uh it was actually (laughs) co-created and co-written by uh ed brubaker who's the creator of the winter soldier in marvel comics but also i would say most notably for this he does the criminal series along with stuff like fatale and the fade out over at Image Comics with uh, Sean and Jacob Phillips, uh, which are these great, feel like they would fall in line with Ruffin's stuff, crime comics.
3: And also Too Old to Die Young is set to, like, the internet is aflame with Miles Teller love after Top Gun. And I would imagine that Too Old to Die Young becomes like a TikTok thing really soon and becomes a conversation topic. I'm calling it now. <laughs> when are we recording this? We're recording this on June 14th. Let it be known. I don't know when this will actually come out, but... I think it's coming.
2: I will say this about Only God Forgives. I know I just kind of knocked it a second ago, but when I was in the booth, maybe it's just the print we had. Uh, for uh, by the way, yeah. So for everyone, who we should talk know, about that. Yeah,
0: a <laughs> never-before-screen
2: print. We got a brand new print of Only God Forgives that had never been shown before, and I opened it out of the shrink wrap and put it right onto the reels, and there was not a single scratch on it. Almost in the way that like. You look at it on the screen and you almost think, like, this is so clean. Is this, like, digital? But no, I mean, it was beautiful. And it's, you know, it was such a visually striking movie, too. Like, you can't help but kind of not look away. So I was going to say maybe it was just the print that we had. But while I was in the booth showing Only God Forgives, I did find myself kind of getting really engaged in the movie before, like, getting bummed that, like, oh, the changeover is coming. I have to, like, stop paying attention now and come back to the movie later. You know, I didn't really get to fully experience the movie in that sense. So I am kind of going off my memory of when I watched it for the first time, like 10 years ago. But uh, it's definitely one that I'm interested in kind of revisiting completely from start to finish, just based on our screening of it just recently. I don't
3: think I went into it as a vibe movie in the way that Drive struck me, especially because I was what was two years after Drive. So I'd like to kind of come at it maybe even by myself and like see if I can embrace the vibe this time because I think you need that for Only God Forgives. I don't think I hit that initially and I think there's an interesting thing about like your theater experience but I had a vocal theater that was (laughs) not happy with the movie and I was sitting pretty far back so it wasn't like an overwhelming experience and I just remember people talking a lot and booing at stuff and like laughing at things. Sometimes that maybe can elevate something but it also can really detract.
0: I also, from a writer or a filmmaker's perspective, I actually thought, I'm like, oh, well, I think this is why Only God Forgive doesn't work. You know, in Drive and in Bronson, your lead characters have agency. They are the ones committing the acts of violence. They are the ones fighting the evil character. In Only God Forgives, actually, by its design, the uh, police lieutenant who represents God, you know, Refn famously said that the idea was he had not, he wanted to fight God. And his conclusion is, I think the correct conclusion, you can't. So when Ryan Gosling and the lieutenant meet, the lieutenant just kicks his effing ass. Like Gosling doesn't even get a punch in. I think that if you were looking for Gosling to kick ass, the whole struggle of Only God Forgives is a spiritual struggle. It's an internal struggle. And if that's not your bag, then I could understand why you'd be like. Like all that Gosling does is decide to make the right decision. He decides not to kill a child. He decides not to follow his mother's advice. He decides not to follow the footsteps of his brother. And he survives because of it. But if you're not moved by internal spiritual decisions, then you're going to watch Only God Forgives and be like, why isn't this guy like kicking ass? Why Why is not he, like, beating this lieutenant? Like, even the most violent scene of Only God Forgives is given to the police lieutenant. It's not given to Gosling. So I can understand why people would have frustrated expectations.
3: But I bet in retrospectives on director's career, that's going to be looked at as a positive, of, like, never delivering. The expectation of what you get from a director is often a similar field. And I think Refn has an awareness where he's like, I'm not going to give that to you. All
0: right, amigos pop culture final
1: thought i uh i watched M- morbius <laughs> you can find me at twitch.tv slash connor and watch me play dnd tuesday evenings at twitch.tv slash nerd holla
3: you
4: know I saw, I saw a lot of pictures this week especially one of my all-time favorites uh cruising got to see on the big screen on 35 mm it was uh it was great it's beautiful double bill windows it was okay. Then I saw a Class of 1984 on 35mm. Great movie. Great movie. And then Little Miss Sunshine. That's it. All great movies.
0: People are recognizing Edwin at the Los Feliz 3 now from the podcast.
4: Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this now. I'm very aware of this. It's quite scary. It's quite uh, dangerous.
0: If you recognize Edwin, listeners, talk to him about his love of Bergman's persona. <laughs> or
4: I can tell you how my hatred... To that movie and how it deserved to be burnt in hell.
2: Give him a little tap on the sack and say it's for me. <laughs> yeah, you could talk about *Mamma Mia* as well. Edwin yeah. loves it. Damn and if it. you do,
3: if you can do actually a dance sequence while making eye contact with Edwin and singing a song from *Mamma Mia*, you'll get free popcorn.
2: It's happening. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I heard that. Edwin cheat code. The popcorn
3: is for you to stop, but still, it's effective. I gotta see *Star Wars*, the original *Star Wars* at the Academy on 70 mm with Edwin, of all people. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. If you remember from a previous recording where he checked in. Tell them how, how the time saved you seats. It was awesome. Edwin got there at 10 a.m. We started at 7.30. I got there at 7. And I sat next to Edwin. So in the end, it was a victory for me. Great time. And a victory for America. Honestly, yeah. It was fun. I had a, a lovely time. Thank you to Edwin. God bless.
4: Yeah, you're welcome.
3: I'm the real hero here, all right?
4: I like true fans. I'm the real fan. Support <laughs> Are you recording from the bathroom again? Yeah. God,
0: we talked to you about respecting us.
2: Uh, like Connor, I also saw Morbius. And like Connor, I'm not going to say anything about it. But uh, I will talk <laughs> about, I saw David Cronenberg's new film, Crimes of the Future. It was quite good. It's not quite like a upper echelon Cronenberg. I'd say it's like upper mid Cronenberg. I think it kind of bit off a little more than it could chew. Which if you've seen the movie, that's not a pun intended. I just realized And it also ended kind of abruptly, but during the time that it's on, it's really intriguing and visually striking and, uh, you know, everything you'd expect from David Cronenberg. It's interesting to see, I think, Craig, you had said this, it's, it's interesting to see that he's getting kind of more intense as a dude in his old age and not mellowing out like many others.
3: I'm kind of in the same space. I feel like I would have been happy with another hour, but I still it's been a, it's been 2 weeks and I still think about it pretty often. So I I'm very curious to see how it sits. Uh, I'll probably go revisit it at some point, but I was kind of in the middle tier, but it's just been kind of living in my brain. So
1: same as you guys. It has such a like strange obtuse world. That it feels like the script could have been streamlined more. I know that's weird, like on a structural level where like some of the beats should have been like clearer. But like what we get of that world is like so interesting and the performances are all so good, especially uh, Vigo and Kristen Stewart. Yeah, yeah.
2: Everyone in the movie is great. Exactly like you just said, especially them. Kristen Stewart's
3: almost tapping into like her Twilight like, mousy persona, and it works so well. She looks like she's about to cry in every scene. Every time she's on screen, I was like, this is, like, the best. I love this performance.
1: But not because she's sad, but because she's so unbelievably horny. And there's (laughs) extended
3: scenes of Vigo just grunting that are cinema. (laughs)
0: I saw my favorite movie so far of 2021. I think Benedetta uh makes a run for this, but I think this movie is the only one for me. It's a personal thing obviously that I would say is truly a great movie of 2021 and that's Resident Evil. uh the No Money Plane. Sorry, I was <laughs> going to say see but now I'm now just running your joke into the ground. I was going to say <laughs> Connor, this is just a soft suggestion. You don't have to take it. But if you're considering having yourself interred instead of cremated, I would recommend that the inscription on the tombstone might just be money plane with a laser engraving of Kelsey Grammer.
3: (laughs) Definitely screaming.
1: If
0: you do that, I will come every month and leave like white flowers or flowers of your your
3: choice. You need a button you can press that. Does lines from Kelsey Grammer.
0: Although I'm going to pre-decease you almost positive. So I don't know. Somehow, maybe I'll visit as a ghost. So my favorite movie of 2021, then the one I think is great, is Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World. If people have not seen this movie. So the story is about this woman in Norway. Although we see her from college to what I think would be her mid-30s, that's sort of what I could figure out. It really focuses on maybe the transition from 29, 30, 31, at like two years in her life. She's very much a millennial millennial character and I think the thing a lot of people talked about is the danger is the movie's directed by somebody who is about a decade older so you're worried for a moment that it's going to be a sort of sour grapes these millennials because the opening really is she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life and she changes careers a few times but it very quickly becomes this incredibly cinematic story of this woman and two of her relationships and her character and her decisions are never what you expect They're frustrating, but frustrating in the way that all of our decisions are frustrating. And it's an incredibly directed film with incredible style. You know, the way you might have felt when you saw Tarantino's Pulp Fiction or the way you might have felt when you saw Danny Boyle's Train Spotting, or the way that you might have felt when you saw Ari Aster's Hereditary or the Softy Brothers, you know, Good Time. Obviously, the worst person in the world has a very different style, but you feel someone on fire with style and the character and her performance is incredible. And it's actually one of the few movies I've seen recently that is sexually explicit, not extremely sexually explicit. I don't want to like oversell it, but it's clearly made in Europe because the sex scenes play out the way real sex plays out. And you're like, there's a scene where suddenly one guy just goes down on her and they stay on it for a while. And you're like, oh, It's a European movie, because that is not a scene you would see in the United States ever, unless it's the uncut basic instinct directed by a European, Paul Verhoeven. I just want (laughs) to say that on all levels, I think this is a great film. I have to encourage people to see it. I think it gets at a current moment. I think that's really hard to do. I hope you will take a chance on it. It's on streaming now. Worst person in the world, Joachim Trier. I've blown away.
3: It was my favorite movie, too, and I think about it constantly. I think it as of like two days ago, it's on Hulu, so absolutely.
0: And it's so funny, you know, it's not like it's about witches and demons and wizards and superheroes or horror or anything, but it is it my favorite movie of 2021. Uh, and I wish I had seen it when we did that podcast. And then just behind it's Benedetta. And I can't figure out why Benedetta's like almost great but not completely great. I don't know what it is. It's like Benedetta is 89% and Worst Person in the World's like 91%.
1: I think Benedetta strains under its budget a little. Maybe.
0: But it's so good.
1: It is really good though. <laughs>
0: Uh, thank you everybody man a wide range of conversation thank you Alex very oh, much of
2: course thank you
0: and uh, we'll have Alex on again let's throw it to future Connor future
1: Connor remind us what's coming up hey just another reminder about summertime on August 4th and Bride of Frankenstein plus the Mike Magnola doc on August 13th and that's it we're definitely not showing whatever stupid stuff Edwin says we are Man, you just killed it future Connor
0: that was
4: great That was so good. Man, we're getting cruising on July. That's awesome, man. Thanks, Craig. (laughs) I like how Edwin (laughs) thinks that works. It does work.
0: It's wonderful to have everybody. As always, go to secretmovieclub.com to find out everything we're doing. Follow our socials because we are releasing a lot of now we have an audience that's in Canada and Europe and I I don't want to like toot our own horn, but just we have an international audience. So for you, the international audience, we want you to be part of our community. So we're creating an archive of interviews that we do here in LA that you can access and we want you to be a Part of everything we do. So just go to secretmovieclub.com and our socials. You'll find out about everything we're doing. You can get tickets for our events at Eventbrite. As always, this podcast was edited by our Chief Creative Content Officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. And next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 114 will be about Louis Boone groundbreaking 1929 film, Un Shen Angelou, and surrealism in general. It's weirdly, I mean, maybe not weirdly, actually, this makes all the sense in the world, a hard topic to fully define, but surrealist cinema, I think, could apply you guys were just talking about Crimes of the Future Cronenberg definitely carries shades of surrealism in his work David Lynch is often probably viewed as the person who's picked up the mantle of surrealism after Boonwell. Hear us talk next week, Secret Movie Club Podcast 114. Louis Boonwell's Un Chien Angelou. This is incredible, and you can watch it right now in preparation for the podcast. It's in the public domain. It's on YouTube. 20 minutes. Very easy to watch. He made it with Salvador Dali. It will blow your mind. Uh, and then we'll talk about surrealism. All right. Have a good week, everybody. Of so, so. See you. Love you.
1: All right, everybody, it's drive time, baby.